Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. Today we're going to be looking back at the legacy of a woman whose tragic death changed Ireland forever. Tomorrow it will be 10 years since the death of Savita Halepanavar in a Galway hospital. The young woman on these banners stumbled unknowingly into Ireland's abortion grey area and these people believe she paid for it with her life. Thousands marched in Dublin to express their sadness at the death of Savita Halapanova and to demand legislation on exactly when a doctor is allowed to abort a fetus. We'll be honouring Savita and talking about her legacy in a moment. But first, when I was in San Francisco recently, I met a super fan of the podcast. I was at a lovely event in the Irish Consulate in San Francisco and Danita Murphy came up to me. She's a beautiful, warm and hilarious woman. She told me that she's a massive fan of the podcast and she likes to listen to it while driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, which I was personally very chuffed about. And I don't want her to crash her car if she's currently driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, but I did want to give a big shout out to Danita Murphy. We had such a laugh in San Francisco. And it was fantastic to get her feedback on the podcast. And I think if she went on Mastermind, she could do the women's podcast as her specialised subject. She knows more than me about it. Anyway, Danita runs a tea room in San Francisco called Lovejoy's Tea Room. That's lovejoystearoom.com if you're ever down San Francisco way, do look her up. So Danita, I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening and for being such a committed listener and for being such a fan of what we do here. Mind yourself and I hope I see you in San Francisco some other time. Now, many of you listening will remember where you were when you heard about the death of 31-year-old Savita Halepanavar, who was admitted to a hospital in Galway with back pain at 17 weeks pregnant, facing a miscarriage. Savita and her husband, Praveen, walked into an Irish maternity ward in October 2012, but they also walked into that deeply controversial arena in which Ireland's legislative position on abortion remained unresolved. A week after she went there, Savita was dead from septicemia. She died 10 years ago tomorrow on the 28th of October. Reports of her death and of the refusal to allow Savita a termination of her pregnancy sent shockwaves across Ireland and around the world and ultimately galvanised a decades-long campaign that in 2018 led to the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, something we've covered extensively on this podcast. 
On Saturday, we hope many of you are going to join a march organised by Rosa and supported by many others, including the National Women's Council, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and Akidwa. That march begins at 1pm from the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin. Rosa called the march to commemorate Savita and to restate what many of us vowed following her death, which was never again. We gathered three women on the podcast to talk about Savita's legacy and the future of abortion rights in Ireland. They are Kitty Holland, who's the journalist who broke the story of Savita's death in November 2012. She's the social affairs correspondent with the Irish Times, an award winning journalist and author of Savita, the tragedy that shook a nation. She also spoke about her own abortions at the time and was part of that personal testimony that eventually moved hearts and minds on the issue in this country. Alva Smith is an Irish writer, academic and activist. For decades, she's been at the centre of political campaigns to legalise divorce, same-sex marriage and with Together for Yes, she helped deliver the historic victory of 66.4% of voters in 2018 voting to repeal the constitutional ban on abortion. In 2016, Anna Cosgrave made a massive contribution to that campaign, launching her repeal project. Her repeal jumpers, black with white lettering, became a stigma buster. And the project brought together musicians, young activists and artists to collaborate in supporting grassroots organisations. The jumper became an iconic image during the 2018 Irish abortion campaign. I began by asking Kitty Holland to tell us about breaking the story of Savita. So it was October 2012 when she died and I first heard about her death early November, about a week after she died. Um, I got a call from a contact in um, in the pro-choice movement who had been contacted by Galway activists. Um, and the story of how they were approached is that, as we know, Savita was 31 years old. Um, she'd been in Galway since 2008. She had was a trained dentist and she had um, was married to Praveen Halapanavar. And she found out she was pregnant in July. It was wonderful news, a great, um, a much wanted baby. And in um, October, on October 21st, she developed very severe back pain. So she was about 17 weeks pregnant at this point. She and Praveen presented at Galway University Hospital and she was told that she was miscarrying the baby. Um, very big tragedy for the couple, but she was admitted to hospital to be observed during the miscarriage. And um, a day after she was admitted, so Monday morning, she asked for the pregnancy to be terminated. It was causing her a huge amount of pain and she was anxious to get home to her parents who were visiting from India and tell them what was going on. And she was told while there was a fetal heartbeat, she couldn't um, have a termination. She asked again on Tuesday morning and was told again she couldn't have a termination. Later that day, she was told by a midwife who was trying to explain and was being very kind to her really um, why she couldn't have the termination in Ireland, she being from India and Hindu. And she was told because this is a Catholic country. And that phrase, as we know, reverberated around the world. Um she got very ill on Tuesday night. On Wednesday morning, we know we now know at 4 a.m. she was checked by a on-call um, SHO senior house officer and he suspected she had sepsis, um, which is developing sepsis. Um, that news didn't get to her consultant until the following day lunchtime. Um, and she also concluded that she possibly had sepsis. At this point, she 
decided it was legal to terminate the, the pregnancy and she was brought to theatre, but that's where she spontaneously delivered her female fetus uh, baby that she named Prasa. She was transferred, she fell into a coma then, was transferred to the high dependency unit. She deteriorated over Wednesday and on Thursday uh, morning was transferred to uh, the intensive care unit. And we heard at her inquest the following April 2013 of the really heroic efforts of the intensive care staff to try and save her. She deteriorated, however, um, and by Friday, sepsis was engulfing her body. Um, she uh, deteriorated further. They they tried all kinds of um, infusions into, in, into her body to try and kind of relax her, to try and help her breathe, to try and... But she was, you know, she was in septic shock by this stage. By um, Saturday, she was extremely, extremely ill. Um, and Praveen was advised to phone her parents and tell her, tell them what was going on. Um, and at one minute, at nine minutes past 1 a.m. on October 28th, she died. Um, so I got a call about that about a week later from her. She had been brought back then her body to India to be buried and her sort of very bewildered friends back in Galway, the Indian community were trying to make sense of it. They approached pro-choice activists who were holding a stall in Shop Street every Saturday because it was the 20th anniversary of the X case and they were gearing up to kind of call for legislation for X. So they approached them to say, you know, what's going on? Why did this happen? Why couldn't you have the termination? So they contacted me. I went down to Galway and was introduced to Dr. Prasad, who was a family friend of um, Praveen's family living in Spiddle. And from there, um, from his living room in Spiddle, um, by mobile phone to Karnataka um, State in south southwest India, I spoke to Praveen and he told me again, as I had been told, what I just told you about what happened to her in the hospital. And Kitty, Praveen didn't expect, I mean, you saw, you you, you went on Google because you heard sort of what her name was. You didn't know exactly what her name was. And you you went Savita, um, Galway, and you found the death notice. That's how you got in touch with that family friend. But Praveen didn't expect it even to be in the papers, did he, when you rang? No, I mean, and that's how unaware they were of the abortion context in Ireland. Um, like when he told me what happened, he actually said to me, do, do you think it will be in the paper? Do you think this is worth reporting on? And of course, I knew <laughs> this is this is huge, um, uh, you know, given the history over the previous 20 years of the X case and the C case and the D case and the ABC versus Ireland and the Miss D case and all the horrendous cases that we'd heard. Um, and, you know, we'd never had someone actually die that we had heard about anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, he did. He, he wasn't sure it would be a big story. The Indian community weren't sure it would even make the paper. Um, but as you know, as we know, it appeared on the front of the Irish Times on the 14th of November. It was a Wednesday. And from there, the I suppose the the campaign to repeal the 8th really revved up from that evening. Yeah. And I just want to say again, Kitty, well done on your reporting on that story. I was actually telling my daughters about it this morning, just in preparation with this podcast and, you know, about how it all came about. And they just couldn't believe it. Like they actually kept asking me, what ha what, what do you mean? Like it's, it's it's so hard for, I think, younger people to understand that that could have happened. Alv, I just want to bring you in now because um, you remember that moment, that front page story. And for you as a campaigner over decades at that stage, did you know immediately that this was going to be a game changing story and also the devastation that everyone felt at the time? Well, yes, I mean, it was very, very clear, absolutely immediately, as Kitty was just saying, that this was 
really the the point that we had come to a point where you really felt very plainly that the centre couldn't hold anymore, that this was going to be the, the moment which would bring a collective kind of awareness and consciousness up to the surface. And that was, of course, exactly what, what happened. People did surge out onto uh, the streets or feel a very strong, have a very strong emotional response to that because there had been all of that built up with all of those horrendous cases that Kitty was, was mentioning. But I think this was such a, uh, such a profoundly shocking and genuinely horrific um, experience. It, it was a terrible event. And coming as it did after decades of difficulty, of struggle, of pain, of suffering, of traveling, of, you know, powerlessness experienced by generations of women, and that's not too strong a way of putting it. I mean, this was over 30 odd years of my own life, for example, it was very, very clear that people really were going to stand up and start uh, asking questions and resisting and so on. And interestingly, we had really been preparing for um, relaunching a campaign. At that stage, it wasn't even called repeal. That came a little bit later. But um, we had been doing that since really, what, 2000. 2009, 2010, with the European Court of Human Rights judgment, which had told the Irish government, you have to straighten out your, you've got to put your house in order. So we had actually been discussing it, talking about it, organising the abortion rights campaign was actually, had just formed a couple of years before I was involved in that at the very beginning. We had um, various things were happening. So it was the moment and my own response immediately was one of very profound shock and and also incredibly sad because this was what we had been saying, Roisin, since 1983. We have been saying that women would suffer. Women had been suffering. We had said that women would die. And as Kitty rightly says, I mean, Savita was the first woman to die that we knew of that we knew of, and we will never maybe have the full story there. But it was that moment when, as well as that emotional, uh, the emotional impact of her death, which personally I experienced really, really strongly, at the same time, there was another part of my brain um, saying, OK, now we absolutely, if, if people are saying enough is enough, we are the ones who have to go out there and organise that sentiment of uh, being... Of, of having come to, we'd hit a wall and we had to go move through that wall. And we were the ones who would have to start saying, this will not happen anymore. We're taking charge of this. You're not going to tell us what we're going to do. We're going to demand a choice for women. So it was very important. I mean, on a very personal level, I was actually in London when it happened and with my family, my daughter and her husband and my first granddaughter had been born on the 31st of October. So she was a little baby of a fortnight, two weeks old. I had two broken arms at the time as it happened. And, you know, so there was quite a lot going on for me. But of course, that drawing that parallel between my daughter having had her much wanted first baby and Savita you know I can still feel the tears welling up because I saw my granddaughter just the other day and she's a little 10 year old girl 
happy in her life, as you can well imagine. And I am so grateful that she is. And I still feel that sadness for Savita's family, for her husband, for her family, her community, and for all those women who suffered. And, you know, it really is what motivates you to fight for change when you think about your own life and its good fortune and privilege and you look at what can happen through really, you know, a complete, it was, it was inhuman. It was profoundly lacking in humanity, apart from disregard for human rights, apart from disregard for women. It was profoundly inhumane what happened to Savita. And it was worsened by that sense that, for me, that this was a young woman who had come here in good faith with her husband. They were starting a family. She had, I think, just got licensed to practice as a dentist. Her whole life was her whole new life in Ireland, that we had welcomed these people. And at least I hope they were welcomed, but that they, from my point of view, they were welcome here. And what had we done? We had said, well, you have to adapt to our brutal laws towards women. And that for me was there all the time. Yeah, I mean, I'm just listening to you and feeling myself those those emotions at the time. I remember standing outside Leinster House and we all had our candles and I remember looking around and you know, it was actually interesting, even that gathering, just the diversity of the people, like there was more men than I'd seen at things. There was different ages. It felt like an absolute moment. And the, and the sadness was real. I mean, I know we didn't know her and we had no knowledge of her, but she represented so much for us. Anna, you were you're around the age that Savita was when she died and you were only in your early 20s when this happened. So tell us about your your feelings at the time and your awareness of the issue. I suppose first to just talk about my feelings of that day. Yeah, I was 22 and I remember going with my friend uh, Olivia and both of us would have been involved in like student politics and feminist groups. I was part of the Irish Feminist Network at the time. We were hosting debates around Catholic sex and control of the Catholic Church and the church and state bind. But it was, yeah, the most moved to action I'd ever felt in a really long time. I think a lot of the feminisms in my mind had often been a little bit abstract. Like I was growing up certainly with um, a sense of righteous anger, but I think this was the first time that the outrage was overwhelming and just Kitty giving the detailed, um, it is really moving and just uh, Alva talking about, you know, since 1983, these people had been fighting. And I think for me, it was the intergenerational piece at that event that it really felt like something that had been happening and was going to happen. And yeah, just feeling emboldened to, to do something. I think as well, the class and privilege thing is something that I'm just super conscious of. And the conversations that I had been having at the time, I was very good friends with a group. We were on a programme together, Claudia Hero, who went on to found Merge, or one of the co-founders, Abdul Ali Hassan, who'd lived in direct provision, Gary Gannon, Laura Harmon. We were part of this group called Wave Change uh, that was being run as an incubator. And uh, yeah, just the conversations at the time made me realise that some of the conversations about feminism amongst my peers, uh, that it was a little bit disconnected. In what way, Anna, do you mean? I just mean that, um, 
yeah, just just, you know, debating on issues versus talking to the people that they directly affect. I know that I was the person in school when somebody needed the morning after pill or someone had a secret, I was the person that they went to. So when I was in boarding school, I was the person that would get the dart into town. And like, I was only reminded of that uh, a couple of weeks ago. Like I kind of, you almost forget, forget those things. And, you know, I was the person who had to sit out during religion class. You know, it was a pretty consistent asking questions piece. Um, but yeah, there was something at the first March for Choice, and this is the truth, the first March for Choice that I went to post Savita Vigil, I was having to really ask friends to come. And it was as if I was asking them to come for me. And that was, that was mind blowing. Not that they didn't care, but it was not on every person's agenda as much as it had been on people like Kitty and Alva and people who were really, really, you know, at the very forefront. And that was something that is really interesting, that it was an abstract thing that maybe they thought it wasn't on their agenda, when now it's so apparent that it affects every single person. You know, it's one in three. It's it was the, it's there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Anna. And Kitty and Alva, maybe you could come in on this. Before, like you say, there was a lot of uh, people in feminist circles or in activist circles were very engaged in this issue. When Savita died, it felt like it became suddenly, almost overnight, more mainstream, where people were able to envisage this could have been my friend, this could have been my sister. And and it brought it home in a way that somehow it just hadn't happened before. Kitty, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing that was very striking, um, which I listened back to afterwards, you know, the few a week or two afterwards, was Liveline that afternoon. Um, the story broke, and for the next two or three days, it was woman after woman after woman, um, telling their stories of the Eighth Amendment and how it had impacted them. And there was one woman in particular who I I wrote about in 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 the book I wrote afterwards. And she talked about the more or less the exact same thing happening to her 20 years previously and how she had had her first two miscarriages. She had three miscarriages, her first two in London and she had her third in Ireland. And she was there and she was sort of telling the doctors, I know what you need to do. You just need to do a DNC, and they wouldn't do it. And she said she lay there and she felt that she was it was it was the first time she really felt she had lost control of what was going to happen to her. And she thought this could be me. This could be me or the baby and saying how, you, you know, she thought Ireland had moved on from that. But that was one story that stood out of hundreds. And as we know, thousands that came out over the next six or seven years until repeal of women. Um, just really identifying with not only their Eighth Amendment stories, but their their obstetric stories of being dismissed, not listened to. Um, women in their 60s and 70s telling me how that they were going to vote yes because they had had two miscarriages and they had not been listened to. Their grief had not been acknowledged. Had been said, and they, it was like, this is my chance now to have my voice heard. And they were going to have it heard because it was they just had enough. And I think there was that latent sense that everyone knew that there was kind of unfinished business and that Alva talked to me about that. Uh, you, but what Savita did was she flipped it into, uh, this is about me too. This is about my values. This is about the kind of country I want to live in. This is about, so not just about pregnancy and obstetrics and women's rights, but about so much more. And that's that was the transformative impact of Savita's death, sadly. Alva, do you want to come in there? 
Yeah, well, no, I would absolutely agree with what Kitty is saying there and also, you know, appreciating what Anna was saying about something which had been uh, maybe a demand on paper almost or in discussion groups that suddenly it actually is there in real life and you can see it. And I think for for those of us who are older, who'd been fighting for a long time and for so many women around the country, as you're saying, Kitty, and can I just say here that I think actually what was very particularly interesting then was that, uh, you know, you in the Irish Times, Kitty, particularly, um, but how it was picked up by the media, which really these cases had been picked up before, but always in a kind of somewhat under the radar, somewhat low key, where somehow it was as if there had been these layers and layers and years and years of struggle. After all, we've had the referendums all the time, 83, 92, 2002, all the cases, A, B, C, X, Y, well, there was no Z, all, all, all of those cases. And it was just all mounting up, mounting up, mounting up. And there was, there was a huge amount of emotion in that mounting up each time, each year, each layer, each case. And ultimately, there does come that time when the dam bursts. And it was that really profoundly shocking moment when a woman was told, however kindly, that she could not have a life-saving, a life-saving procedure in an Irish hospital because it was a Catholic country. And you could hear, the point about the values is you could hear, you could hear people thinking, what is Catholicism if it, if this is what can happen? I'm not sure they quite said if it can kill women, but that was actually the question, where are we? We say we're a Catholic country, we say we're good people. So why has this woman died? Why has there been so much pain? So that brought up the question of values, which ultimately, actually, we went on really to campaign on, because when you think about that whole repeal the eighth campaign, it was about saying um, that equality matters, that humanity matters, that compassion matters, that we have to be truthful and honest. And we're still trying to say that, by the way. It's, it's a lifelong work, I think. But it was certainly that turning point. But that's so often the way with really profound and difficult social issues that something happens which splits the world open. I always use that Anne Sexton quote, which I love myself. What would happen if a woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. And it was Ireland splitting open and our very raw emotion in which the whole history of the brutality of the Catholic Church towards women and their babies, uh, supposedly outside marriage, um, as if marriage is some kind of, 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 of concrete place. And, and for, of course, a very long time it was because you couldn't get out of it. But, you know, it, 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 it was that whole history. We were carrying that with us in a very kind of inchoate way in 2012. So... It was yeah. the centre can't hold uh, anymore. And, uh, you know, when, when, when I think back to it, I actually think most of us probably lived in a kind of, most of us who are campaigners and activists lived in a kind of dual state for quite a while. There was the emotional shock, sadness, grief, a very real grief and grief for what had been happening for so long, which was there all the time. And at the same time, there was the determination, the planning, 
the determining, in a way, what Anna was talking about, that we had to move ourselves out onto the streets and move everybody with us. And those women, by the way, in Galway, that group is really still kind of together. They're now Access for Abortion Campaign West, I think, uh, people like Detta McLaughlin and others. They're still there and we are still, we're actually still having to fight Let's not assume well, that it's all over. You know? Yeah, well, we're going to come on and talk talk about that. Uh, Kitty, I just wanted to ask you, actually, I was just thinking there about Praveen and the Halapanaver family. Do you keep in touch with them? Do you know how they are? Have you been speaking to them at all recently? Uh, I was actually speaking to her brother yesterday, Sanjeev, and she has another older brother, Santosh. So her father died, um, I think, in 2019, who was, you know, quite a campaigner in his own right. He sent videos every now and again calling for the abortion laws to be received, that nothing would like had happened to his daughter would happen again. Um, Praveen is, has remarried and is living in San Jose in California and, and doesn't really engage with this anymore. And I suppose that's fair enough. Um, her brother supports the march that's happening on Saturday. And um, but doesn't really want to go beyond that because he's looking after his mother and um, she gets he told me she gets quite emotional about it if it's talked about. So they are coming up to the 10th anniversary as well. So, uh, you know, they're grieving as well. And um, that's how they are. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We're going to talk about abortion provision soon, but just before we move on to that, Anna, you mentioned earlier that you found yourself having to persuade some of your peers that this was a burning issue, even at the time of Savita's death. So tell us about that, first of all, and also about how her death galvanised you in terms of creating those iconic repeal jumpers that were so emblematic of the struggle for abortion rights here. Yeah, I think I remember specifically at the time I had watched a documentary by Ricky Lake called The Business of Being Born. And it was um, just about birth practices in, in America and it was in the States. And I hadn't really fully, you know, I'd been doing a project about birthing practices in Bolivia, you know, and I'd never really fully understood exactly what was happening and around me. And yeah, I think it, it was, it's sort of, as uh, Kitty, as you all know, that this issue really is at the cornerstone of women's autonomy and pregnant people's freedoms, that it really, it is this sort of catalyst where it intersects so many vital things that we've always been fighting for since the beginning of time. And I think maybe through like lecturers or through the privilege of like growing up with so many ideas in my house and having, you know, 
probably quite direct, very personal um, stories that had been told to me, I could really see. And, you know, it was by design that my friends and people in school, you know, it was a complete fabrication. You know, it's, it's not anyone's fault that they didn't think that this was a burning issue. This is a complete, may we say, Catholic state design, that it was seen as an issue that wasn't something completely on the agenda. So I have, you know, complete understanding and awareness. But yeah, there was a little bit of, of convincing because it was an issue that even some young people didn't have the language to talk about because they were made to feel like shamed or, you know, that it was something terrible. Even to talk about contraception, an issue that both of you have written and fought for for so long. You know, this is something that was very kind of decided and... Yeah, it was just an, an amalgamation. And I'm very aware that it, it wasn't me doing something. It was like many people that led to me wanting to do something and many other people that carried something very basic and a very small part of this huge kind of uh, movement. And I remember then in 2015 reading the abortion papers, volume two, that Alva and Sinead Kennedy and some academics um, had edited and just kind of grasping a, a fuller understanding of this being, you know, such a huge, yeah, it just intersects so many things for me um, massively. And I'm still thinking, I was working as a facilitator this year in a number of schools. And even still, just like Alva said about your granddaughter, when I'm looking at the younger women, like, can you imagine some of the situations eventually that would arise that they would be put under? Um, and even just nurses for choice, like uh, thinking recently about some of the women when they were doing their medical training, knowing that this chill factor that this would put over them, you know, when they're in maternity wards, um, yeah, but it was a massive composite. There was the Gloria Steinem T-shirt, you know, that said I had an abortion. And I remember thinking if every one of my friends or every woman that I had met was able to wear one, you know, what would happen? Um, so that was another um, catalyst. And I've been going to various meetings of different um, feminist groups that say my friends and peers maybe didn't have time to or weren't really engaged with. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's how you came about with the repeal jumper, which I know you say it was a small part, but I think. But also Alva, I, thanks so much to Alva. I remember she met me and was so encouraging and so supportive and really, you know, made me feel like I could do something. So I'm not sure you remember that, Alva. And I've been meeting with, you know, various different people. It wasn't in a vacuum. Um, and I feel quite divorced from from that. Not that time, but I think it, it finishes and then you're moving on. And, you know, it's. It's some, I don't mean it's something else. It's a continuation of that issue. But it is funny sort of looking back because I think for some people it is like a chasm of, of time. It is, you know, there was the anticlimactic day. You know, I think the energy was so interesting at Dublin Castle. And during COVID, I did um, a course with Camilla Fitzsimons, who's written a really good book on the kind of unfinished fight uh, of Repeal the Eighth. And there was a cross section of campaigners and some of them mothers, some of them um, a lot older than I am, and still feeling the repercussions of having to fight for that for so many years, still not really able to go to meetings, to revisit it too much, you know, and it's something to having to aerate a personal story in order for someone to give you a basic health, healthcare access and right is also really, it can be so damaging. So I'm still thinking of mm. all of well, those people. 
I, well, I want to say thank you to you anyway for that amazing jumper because I do think it gave us all something to go behind. Um, and speaking of what Anna has just described there as unfinished business, Kitty, uh, in July, a report was published by Trinity College, a study into women's experiences using abortion services in Ireland. And it's very clear that women's needs are still not being met in lots of ways. So can you talk to us a bit about that, please? Yeah, so... Um there was a study which was commissioned by the HSC. It was um, as part of their um, duties, I suppose, under the legislation that they would conduct a review of how it's working of the Health Regulation Termination of Pregnancy Act. Um, and um, it found, well, three three main issues or perhaps even four, but certainly three. And they are that under the current legislation, you can get an abortion on request up to 12 weeks. And thereafter, where there's a fatal fetal abnormality, where there's a threat to the life or health of the mother. But (laughs) up to 12 weeks, um, you must first of all request a termination and then you must wait for three days, have a cooling off period to make sure you're make sure you're sure before you can access the abortive fashion medication. And that's um, seen as very problematic because once a woman has decided that she doesn't want to carry on the pregnancy, she's made the decision. She doesn't need to go off and think again for another three days. Equally, a doctor will be very well versed in reading whether a woman is um, kind of hesitant or not sure and would be well able to say, listen, I think maybe you should go and think about it for a day or two. Um, so that's an issue. And it's it's where women, it's a particular issue where women are coming up to the 12 week limit, which actually is 11 days and six, six, 11 weeks and six days. As Peter Boylan says, when you're pregnant for 12 weeks, you're actually pregnant up until 12 weeks and six days, not 11 weeks and six days. Um, so it's very arbitrary that 12 weeks. So um, and after 12 weeks, you would then have to go to after nine weeks, actually, you have to go to a hospital for the termination. So it's ca- it, it causes problems. It causes delays and makes things more complicated. And if you have to travel for the two appointments, it can add costs and health and childcare issues and all that kind of thing. The other um, big issue is the um, case of women with fatal fetal abnormalities. They um, have that they to to qualify for a termination here with a fatal fetal abnormality. It has to be certified by two doctors that the baby or the fetus would definitely die within twenty eight days of birth. And when it says two doctors, it's actually a whole multidisciplinary team, which would involve neonatal specialists and that kind of thing. So it would just take one or two people in that team to say, I don't think that that baby will definitely die within 28 days. That baby could actually live for, um, you know, two weeks, for, you know, two months or and the only person, as Peter Boylan says, who the only people who are not involved in that decision making are the other parents. And we still have women and couples having to travel to England for um, for terminations and being told in those hospitals where they may have to spend €4,000 accessing it. You only go if you can afford it. Um, being told you should have got this termination back home in Ireland. So women are still having to travel. Um, and, and the other thing then is the criminalisation of doctors. There's that chilling factor that doctors, particularly with that fatal fetal or coming up, if they're unsure, if the woman's unsure about her weeks, it's still a crime to carry out a termination if you don't do it within the strictures of the law and these arbitrary kind of cut off points. So there's still a chilling factor um, and healthcare, you know, which, which the WHO says that abortion should be seen as absolutely just part of normal healthcare. And yet it's still criminalised in Ireland. So they would be 
the main issues. I don't know if Alva wants to come in and say there's other yeah, issues. Alva, the legislation, the review is coming the end of the year. So what do you want to see happen? What do you think is going to happen? Well, first of all, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the blocks and obstacles to women and pregnant people actually in real life accessing um, abortion here are very considerable. So the, the reality is that we have a law which does certainly permit abortion really up until nine weeks. It is relatively straightforward, although there are difficulties and very real issues with actual service provision, but relatively straightforward, which shows you that that kind of law can actually work quite well if it is if there is a sufficient uh, length of time. But once you start putting in then these sorts of deadlines at nine weeks, 12 weeks, or indeed, as Kitty so rightly says, um, you know, as 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 Ghani and Ops people have pointed out, that you get into this sort of days, when it's a week a week, when it's actually only six days and you're pregnant. So, you know, um that that is a, a that's a very real, a very, very real sort of problem. So I think that ultimately what we would what we need, of course, is uh, access to abortion up until viability. And really that is the only way that the needs of women and pregnant people for abortion are going to be appropriately um, met uh, within the law. And then you have to ask the question, which seems to me to be a very reasonable one, is why is abortion in the law at all? We actually campaigned in Together for Yes for repeal of the Eighth Amendment, take it out of the Constitution where it was never, where it should never have been. And we didn't say put it into law. That was the work of politicians and the government of the day. And of course, everybody said, well, if you take it out of the constitution, you've got to slap a law and you can't have abortion in a country unless it's legally controlled. Not at all. Abortion should, uh, and it's the point Kitty was, was making, abortion as a healthcare issue should be regulated as all other healthcare issues are regulated through um, bodies like the, the, the HSE, through uh, regulation by the professional bodies, the College of Physicians, the College of Obs and, and Gynae people, and so on and so forth. And uh, abortion is that very, very, very rare, if not actually exceptional situation, where there is a whole set of controls placed um, with regard to that procedure, which really have nothing to do with medicine, which really have nothing to do with health. So I, my own sense is that it's really very important for us to say that pragmatically, we have to work for an expansion and a clarification of the terms of the law that we actually have step one. But that step two must be that we have to keep on making the point, demonstrating through the research, the very excellent research of people like Catherine Conlon and Trinity and so on, that the law is a totally inappropriate, blunt instrument when it comes to uh, pregnancy. And I feel that very, very, very strongly. It is arbitrary. And Alva, how realistic do you think that will come out of that legislative process? I mean, it's, I mean, I can. it makes perfect sense what you're saying. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening is like, yeah, why is it legislated in that way when no other healthcare is? But how close are we to perhaps that coming out of the, the legislature and into just the more health area? You're asking me to have some kind of crystal ball. And I mean, I clearly yeah. didn't have it in relation to repeal the Eighth <laughs> Amendment back in 1983. And I don't have it now. But I do know... Um, that we are not alone in saying this in Ireland, that there is a worldwide movement. And despite the really horrible 
um, difficulties and reversals that we have seen, obviously, in the US, um, the dreadful situation in Poland, the bad situation in Croatia, in Italy, it's, it's really, the law is very jeopardised and so on and so forth. So there is that movement to roll back on rights which women have gained over the past two or three decades. But at the same time, if you look globally, the overall movement is towards opening up and so-called liberalisation of abortion regimes. But there shouldn't be a regime. And it seems to me that globally um, there is that movement towards understanding that the integration of abortion within reproductive and maternal health care is really what's required. And I would ultimately be, of course, very hopeful that we will achieve that. And, you know, I'm, I am, to put it mildly, no longer a young woman, but I certainly hope that during uh, whatever remains to me in my life, that I will actually see that happening. And I would certainly, you know, want to be throwing in my lot with that particular campaign, because I think it makes absolute good sense. And once you have, once you're talking really something that's very sensible, ultimately professionals say, look, really, this is just not working. We have got to move in a different direction here on this. So, yes, I mean, politicians are always the problem. And really, that's up to the people. We have to ask our politicians, I think, more detailed questions about, you know, questions that are not... Some people say, oh, it's very philosophical what you're saying. I say, it's not a bit philosophical. This is entirely practical. Mm-hmm. Um, something that, you know, 11 weeks and six days, it is just so absurd when you're talking about a pregnancy which doesn't work according to plan. You know, a young friend of mine just had her baby four weeks early the other day. It never works to plan. It never, it's never just date, date-led. So I'm I'm pretty hopeful overall, but at the same time, being a practical person, we must fight to expand uh, and make that law more usable by women and pregnant people. And at the same time, the services have to be provided. And that is not happening. 11 out of our uh, maternity, uh, 19 maternity units are operating pretty well okay. I think pretty well. And then the, the other... Uh, eight or not. They they do not have adequate or indeed in some cases any services uh, for women. Only one in 10 GPs approximately officially um, provides the, the, the care up to the 12 weeks. I mean, that's not acceptable. Uh, this has to, to change. And we have to get rid of that so-called conscientious objection clause a conscientious objection seems to imply that anybody who objects to uh, abortion has a conscience and that nobody else has. So we actually name that a refusal of care clause because it is de facto a doctor saying, I refuse to care for you at this important moment during your reproductive life cycle. And that, we feel, should be quite simply removed. That's so important, Alva. Um, I just want to go back to Savita and about her legacy and about how we kind of mark this 10-year anniversary. And there's this march on Saturday. Anna, you're going along and you've marched, as as many of us have over the years, at various ones. Tell us about this one um, and how you're going to mark the 10 years since Savita's death. I'm marching with someone that shared their story with me and we went on um, Clareburn Live together. And yeah, I am marching. I really, I think not to boost the Irish Times, but Kitty, your article was really um, like how we honour Savita was just 
I think it is just really important that she is the person that we keep keep in mind um, and I suppose that her legacy is uh, in our hearts. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but again, it's still, as Alva said, you know, the law isn't as expansive as it needs to be. It doesn't really reflect the wants of the Citizens' Assembly and the people that went and voted uh, for this legislation. So it's... Um, yeah, it's like a heavy-hearted m moment, I think, for anyone that's going out to really, you know, be having another vigil in memory of someone that died needlessly at the hands of the Irish church and state kind of um, organisation. So I'll be really moved, but also it's another reminder of what has yet to be done and what um, has to still be sort of fought for. Um, so, yeah, I think I've never um, partnered or um, kind of uh, allied myself with any one political party. So it's a very personal, it's just a personal, personal walk, I think. I think that's a great point, Kitty, about what Anna said there about keeping Savita in our heart, because I remember um, the night of the vote. Actually, you were the person who told me I was cycling along the canal and Kitty rang me. And you know, we had this very emotional moment on the phone and everyone went, I actually didn't, but everyone went to the Savita mural on Camden Street then. And she was the, the, the place that everyone wanted to, to be. Will you be marching on Saturday, Kitty? Or um, how do you sort of reflect on this being the person who broke the story 10 years later? Well, I mean, you know, as journalists, we, we are meant to be neutral on everything. Um, but, you know, given that Savita died and what her death um, meant in terms of what it did and what it changed in Ireland and how it changed our approach to women with crisis pregnancies from one of punishing them and judging them to being one where we reached out our arms and put our arms around them and said, we'll mind you. Um, we're still not doing that enough. Um, we are still not minding women with crisis pregnancies adequately. And I think it's really important that, you know, that people did come to vote for in many ways. Savita was in people's hearts and minds when they went into the ballot box and voted yes for repeal. And they one of the notes at that shrine was, we're sorry we were late, but we're here for you now, which is I always well up when I even say it. But we're not fully there. We're not fully there. So there's more work to be done. And I think it's really important that, you know, uh, that her legacy is honoured properly by the Irish state, that her death is honoured properly by the Irish state and that we're not there yet. Yeah. And will you be there on Saturday marching? I will. I will. I will. Yeah. And Alva, what about you? I mean, we've, that's been great words from Anna and Kitty about and that word legacy is really important. And also just keeping Savita, this woman who went so much to so many people. And as, as Kitty said earlier, there's a grieving family, you know, in India who have lost this beautiful, beautiful woman. And we'll never have that loss. But, you know, we know, we can kind of have a, an understanding of it. What is that legacy and how will you be marking it? Well, first of all, you know, actually, I just want to pick up on something Anna said. I do want to say a big thank you to all of the women journalists in particular and in the media who really, really, really came up to the fore. And it wasn't necessarily easy in all cases, I know, um, for, for, for journalists to be saying, I want to do a piece on this. I'm insisting. I, I'm going to interview. I'm going to whatever. And not just, I'm not just obviously talking about the Irish Times, but all of the media outlets. And that was very, very, very uh, important. And that we must never forget that either. 
um, and that the, the the great good that can come from that. Um, I mean, I think I think the march is very important. We have done, we have marked Savita's death every year since over the past nine years and now on this 10th anniversary it's really important that as Anna says she is still there in our hearts that she is that touchstone that reminder but it's also true that we now have um, girls uh, young women coming up who don't really you know who were age 10 are not even born at that time and it's very important for them to have that sense that understanding of how hard um, people have fought women in particular to have these rights and how important it is for us to protect and expand and develop and grow them in our own country but also of course abroad and to defend and stand in solidarity with others elsewhere who are experiencing great problems so you know while as Anna so rightly says you march with a heavy heart because you are commemorating a death and a very a very real and a very deeply sad uh, moment and a huge loss all around but at the same time you are commemorating a moment that enabled us to take a big step forward in this country and then on to um, uh, to repeal, that really we broke through that stranglehold uh, that the Catholic Church had kept us in for so long. And younger generations will have many, 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 and already have many struggles. But hopefully that that stranglehold has been broken, I would hope, once and for all. So we'll be marching for that, marching to honour Savita. And, you know, we will also, I think, be... Uh, beginning a campaign to have a memorial uh, to Savita here in uh, in Ireland, whether it's in Dublin or in Galway or wherever perhaps remains to be seen. But I think that we do need some concrete, tangible way of keeping her there in our hearts and putting that out there uh, publicly. Personally, I hope that everybody who was moved 10 years ago will come and join us on the march if they possibly can. Um, and those who were too young, really, that they would take this opportunity to just understand something about that really difficult history we've had. And to mark also the fact that it did lead to a victory. And let's not forget that with all of the awful defects and shortcomings of the law, that well over 6,000 um, women and pregnant people in this country do manage now every year to have abortion here without travelling and that that is a big step forward and we will keep taking further steps. <laughs> yeah. Um, just one one thing I want to ask all of you before you go as well. We have a lot of American listeners and as you alluded to earlier, Alvar, there's so much horrific stuff going on there at the moment, so much uncertainty and I was in America recently talking to some women about it and they're just they're just devastated and a lot of people not knowing what to do so I wanted to ask each of you, just from your own perspectives and the activism and journalism that you've all been involved in, what would you say to, to people in America listening or women in America listening who would like to do something? As a journalist, I suppose would, you know, um, appeal to journalists to keep to cover to cover this as a human rights issue and as a, as a woman's rights issue. And and to think, I mean, like I remember when I heard about Roe versus Wade being overturned, my immediate thought was, you know, the 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 privileged white middle class women will probably still be able to travel interstate to access abortion. It's the poor brown Latino girls who are going to have you know, who's it's really really going to hurt them, and you know that 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 
to keep to keep covering it and to keep fighting and and try and prevent a Savita like case happening. But it it pros- it possibly will. And uh, Alva, have you been offering advice over there? Are you in contact with a lot of people in America? Well, I've been in contact quite quite a bit. I mean, don't ever offer advice. I, I can say what we did here, but also pointing out that you always have to do what's going to work in your context. And I, I think myself, but it's very much from outside the US because I don't live there, never have, um, is that you have to keep it local. I think it is a state by state. It was state by state that the anti-abortion movement actually deconstructed the whole structure that actually ultimately led to the reversal of Roe versus Wade. So it's about actually saying, you did that, but we could do that too, and build up strengths on a state-by-state basis, and particularly as the midterm elections are coming up to say, for heaven's sake, for the sake of the goddess, and everybody get out there and vote um, for the Democrats who will... Uh, be more likely to do something good in relation to abortion, obviously, than the Republicans. So I think that's very important. The other thing I would always say is never give up. That when when things are very tough, very low, that is absolutely the moment when you need to come together collectively to say, how can we uh, move forward together and to try as far as possible while working on a local basis to keep that sense of national uh, solidarity, which is so difficult in a country as vast as the US, but which is incredibly uh, important. And to say that, you know, internationally, cross-nationally, transnationally, we stand absolutely in solidarity and that we also have to make use, Ireland has a very good opportunity to speak up in the United Nations um, for the right to abortion worldwide and to keep doing that and to use the the sort of the elan that has come from our own victory here in Ireland as a kind of jumping off point for doing that. And I would like to see them assuming that responsibility more firmly in the future. And Anna, do you think a unifying piece of clothing like a repeal jumper might emerge in America? And, and would you be uh, involved in that? Um, I think they have unbelievable like merchandise. And I think the interesting piece is around, I recently was like returning to Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider about how like this isn't, you know, there's no one issue because we don't live in single issue lives and just how this does intersect so many elements of women's autonomy. And I think because it isn't, it's a state by state case and we know that women that are middle class and privileged are very easily able to access information to access travel so I do think this is really about something kind of stepping outside of their own realities and understanding the fragility of America as a as a superpower and just how important the grassroots local activism is on a wider scale and I suppose yeah, I think it's really interesting. I know there's a, a film coming out uh, kind of about the underground abortion networks. I think it's called Jane, which is coming out soon. And it is there's more and more um, in mainstream media. So I think I would just encourage those that do have a platform to be using it. And then also to recognize as well, you know, there's no such thing as the voiceless. You know, it's a again, it's something by design. Um and I think it is interesting. Yeah, Ireland are in a really unique position. And I think it's amazing that like academics and journalists and stuff, they certainly are. There is a cross collaboration. Like I know, Alva, you're speaking quite regularly. And uh, yeah, I do think it's something that we probably forget that uh, women who fought for years have really done, that we had one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the world. You know, it's uh, 
yeah, so I'm sure hopefully um, some of our um, partners across the world can have solidarity um, from us, which I think they, they, they know they do. Well, thank you very much, all of you. I just want to sort of finish, I suppose, by, um, you know, keeping Savita there at the forefront of this whole thing. Um, we know how much it changed everything. And I mean, you've all spoken so well about that. Maybe just a, a final word about uh, Savita and um, what she did for this country. Alva? Oh, I wish she hadn't had to. Um, I just honour her memory and feel the sadness still. But I am so glad that we were able to take hold of that and to try to turn that sadness to, to some good. And I, I, uh, I think I will always feel that. But I find it very difficult. I find it very difficult to say that was good because in no sense was it good. It was horrendous. And Katie, do you think, I mean, obviously the devastating sadness, but is there any comfort, you think, for the brothers that you spoke to that she created such change in this country that has changed the lives of women and girls for, forever here? I think there may be some, but, you know, they, they live very far away from us. And it's, it's, a, it's a right that women in India have had since 1971. So it's um, a right that they... So I, I, to be honest, I, I I don't think there's huge comfort in it for them. I think it's it's a huge loss for them, particularly for her mother. Um, and, you know, this anniversary is going to bring up the death of her husband a few years ago as well. I think it's going to be a very difficult um, time for, for them. I know they're gathering as a family this weekend. Um, so, and the, the Indian community are you know, going to have a minute silence for her in Galway this weekend as part of their Diwali um, celebrations. So, Look, it's, it's really difficult, but I, I think what Savita did for us is that she gave this country permission to see women in crisis pregnancies with compassion and love. And I think that's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's what we needed from a very unnecessary death. Thank you, Kitty. And, and a final word to you just on Savita and, and honouring her. Yeah, I think that... She, it'll be a challenge forevermore for anyone to look at that image of a vibrant, young mother, medical professional, um, and not to feel sorrow and to feel some form of a hope. And also, I think as well, her image is something that we can use to really challenge the structures that led to her needless death. I think it's an image that we can use to ask the really difficult questions now of how we can make an Ireland that wouldn't allow this to happen again. So I just really hope that for those young girls that Alva mentioned that might be at the march with their parents, that we don't forget her history, the story that Kitty broke and she's forever, you know, used as this um, kind of cornerstone and that we just also respect the atrocity that her family uh, are going through. So I'll be thinking of her family um, and her relations um, in India. Well said. And thank you all very much. Um, we can't talk about this enough. As Alva said earlier, the fight has to continue. There's no complacency with this issue. As we've seen, things can go backwards as well as forwards. So it's really important that we keep talking about it. And I hope there's a huge turnout for the march and a fair play to the organisers because there's a lot involved in putting something like that together. So well done to everybody in um, the organising committee of that as well. So thank you very much, Anna Cosgrave, Kitty Holland and Alva Smith. And just to say that march 
is organised, as I mentioned earlier, by Rosa, who did incredible work to repeal the 8th. And the march begins at the Garden of Remembrance at 1pm on Saturday. And if you can join, please do just to send that message of never again and to commemorate that beautiful young woman we've been talking about today. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Me, Roshi and Ingle by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I will talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>